G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. One of the most helpful books from the past 20 years, or at least, well, that's a bit exaggerating, isn't it? One of the most helpful books that I've read uh, from the past 20 years, that narrows it down, um, on cultivating a robust, a reasonable, a grounded faith in our modern world, uh, as I read it anyway, is Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, uh, subtitled Belief in an Age of Scepticism. The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Scepticism. It's a, it's a kind of fat book, but it's so well written, it's such a great read. Uh, whether you're a believer or not, actually, I'd heartily, I'd, I'd so encourage you to pick it up. What it does is, um, it, it's really a book about two things. On the one hand, it, it lists the very best and most common arguments put forward by sceptics against Christianity, against Christianity. Do these arguments stack up? Um, do, we, do they sink our faith? What can we learn from the process of trying to answer them? Um, and then on the other hand, what are the very best arguments for our faith? Um, and from there, might our historic ancient faith provide not only true answers, but answers that are good and robust and perhaps even are satisfying to some of the enduring needs and questions and conundrums of life in the modern world. I think it's an excellent book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Scepticism by uh, Timothy Keller. Now, by way of introduction, I'd just like to focus on the first half of that equation, the first half, the against, so to speak, because today I'm particularly interested, as we come to John 12, in how the world sees Christians, how the world sees us, Uh, When the world looks at the church, what do they see? When the world brushes against Christ's followers in life, what is the impression that we leave on them as we go? So, Tim Keller, in the first half of that book, let me list them off for you. Uh, He devotes himself to talking through the common reasons that people doubt Christianity. Common, thoughtful reasons not to believe. Let me list them off for you. Number one, there can't be just one religion. Number two, how could a good God allow suffering? Number three, Christianity is a straitjacket. Number four, the church is responsible for so much injustice. Number five, how can a loving God send people to hell? Number six, science has disproved Christianity. And number seven, you can't take the Bible literally. Um, Now in the book, there's there's some good ones in there, isn't there? Now, in the book, he tackles each one uh, and I think does a great job, by and large, of answering them one by one. And if those are your questions, go and read it, you know, do yourself a favour, set yourself the task of reading that. I can lend you my copy if that would help. Um, But it got me thinking, do people have these conundrums sort of just out of thin air in life? Or do people have these conundrums or at least is weight given to these doubts and these issues, these arguments, because partly they have had a brush with Christians, an encounter with Christians. Have we somehow contributed to their problem, made those doubts all the firmer because of the impression that we've left on them in some way? It just got me wondering. I think it bears at least considering. So, beside each one, uh, could it be that we're known for, well, what would be the equivalence of each one? 
Uh, so there can't be just one religion. Perhaps they've known Christians, people with this objection, known Christians who take the exclusive claims of Jesus, which are exclusive, taken them so far that, that well, those, they've felt shunned by those Christians. The Christians are more concerned with being in their holy huddle and not really concerned with anyone else, thanks very much. Don't seem friendly to them. It could be that. Uh, second, how could a good God allow suffering? I wonder, have these folks, have they found Christians to be unhelpful when they've suffered? Do you see what I mean? Perhaps an unhelpful comment made that's compounded their struggles in life or have they simply met Christians who seem to have little regard, little concern for the plight of our world, little investment in making this world a better place? How could a good God allow suffering? Perhaps we've contributed to that in some way. Thirdly, Christianity is a straitjacket. Thirdly, perhaps they've met Christians who aren't so much upright as uptight. (laughs) That's not that hard to imagine, is it? Quicker to criticise than to show grace. Fourthly, the church is responsible for so much injustice. I think we've heard quite enough of the Royal Commission and uh, this week, haven't we, to draw plausible conclusions there, at least. Fifthly, how can a loving God send people to hell? Do the Christians around them see more of hell and judgment than of grace and heaven? Sixthly, science has disproved Christianity. Perhaps their Christian friends come across as defensive or frightened whenever research comes out, whenever new discoveries are made, defensive, on the back foot. And lastly, you can't take the Bible literally, they say. Have they found Christians, I don't know, this could go two ways, who avoid following the plain teachings of Jesus and explain it away? Or has their experience been that we're more eager to apologise for the Bible's content than proclaim the Bible's hero and the hope that we have in him? My point is, how do we come across in the world? What are we known for? What impression do we leave in the minds and the hearts of the people around about us? Can we pray as we come to John 12? Let's pray. Great God in heaven, you have shown yourself to be an absolutely awe-inspiring God. Down through the ages, your patient, your loving plan of salvation has revealed your character again and again. You are great You are wonderful and loving and perfect and we do fail to live up to that and we fall so far short of that glory. Lord God, may we learn something this morning a little more of what it is to be your image bearers in this world, that you may be glorified in us, that the world, uh, that people that we actually know and love might see and know and learn, perhaps even to worship you, O oh great God, in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Now, John chapter 12, here we are, verse 20, John chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. Not at all unusual, okay, for there to be Greeks, that is Gentiles, non-Jews, to be at Passover. It's not unusual. It wasn't unusual for there to be Greeks In Jerusalem, I mean, such a massive festival. The city just swelled with all kinds of people. Uh, Not at all unusual. After all, the Jewish religion had all sorts of hangers-on in that day. Varying levels of commitment. Some of them had basically become Jews, you know, through circumcision, religious observance, the whole package. Others 
liked the Jewish religion, um, hung around the edges, genuinely feared God. But what's unique as we come to John chapter 12 and verse 20 is that here, for the first real time in John's Gospel, they come to Jesus. They haven't just come to Judaism, these, the world as it were, these Greeks as it were, have come to Jesus. They want to see Jesus and all this in a climate where frankly, native-born Jews, they aren't exactly doing so well when it comes to receiving Jesus at, at all, have they? Think back over the last few weeks now. So here is the event, the world through its representative few Greeks here, The big wide world, which is so important to John, for God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his one and only son. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, proclaimed John the Baptist back in chapter 1. I am the light of the world, said Jesus himself, chapter 8, verse 12, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The world beyond the borders of Judaism, have come to see Jesus. Here we go, chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks coming among those, uh, sorry, among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Now, um, Bethsaida, that's kind of at the fringes of of northern Israel. Um, Perhaps they fancied their chances if they came to Philip first. Maybe they'd find a sympathetic ear. You know, he's already from the fringes of of the Jewish land. Maybe they'd find a sympathetic ear if they came to him first. Perhaps not all of the disciples spoke Greek. It's plausible. Philip certainly would. You'd expect him to from where he was from. Philip is a Greek name after all. We'll go to Philip. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip in turn, told Jesus. And then Jesus replied. Now, this is interesting. Then Jesus replied, what? Come on in. Come on in. I've been longing for this moment. That's fantastic. No, no. Then Jesus replied, are you serious? Greeks? Greeks want to see me? This is spectacular. Ah, the whole world has come after me. It's just like the Pharisees said. Yeah, they they think they've got the world after them. Looks like I'm winning now. I've got the world coming to me. These Greeks, fantastic. I've been waiting for this moment. Spectacular. No, no, it's not that either. Although the very next verse does, at first blush, sound a bit like that. Verse 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That rings some bells, doesn't it? The hour, his time. Uh, We've been waiting for this, haven't we? Remember the the phrases littered through John's Gospel? See if some of these ring bells. Um, My time, Jesus would say, my time has not yet come. Do you remember that? Uh, Plenty of times. I am with you only for a short time. We've heard that. The hour is coming when, Jesus would say. And so now, finally, the time has come to see Jesus, to see glory, and the world's there. This is fantastic. So the next sentence, how is the world to see Jesus? What kind of window will the world enjoy on this great and glorious Saviour for all the world sent from God? Let's read, Jesus, verse 23, replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it 
dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So the world, the world is poised and ready to see his glory, the glory of Jesus. And what is the window that Jesus opens for them? What is the view that he would unfurl before all the world to see? Christ would be known as the Lord who died that they might live. Died in all his glory. That's the glory of God in the world. Um, Andreas Kirstenberger, such a classic name, I almost laugh every time I say it. Andreas Kirstenberger, he points, out, points this out well, I think. He says, unlike Matthew, Mark and Luke... Okay, the other guys who record these kinds of events, this patch of Jesus' life, unlike Matthew, Mark and Luke, who accentuate more keenly the shame and pain suffered by Jesus in his crucifixion. John, he says, John presents the cross primarily as the place of Jesus' glorification. According to John, Jesus is not glorified despite, but through and in the cross, For it is there that Jesus is revealed as the obedient, dependent son who faithfully accomplished his mission. I'd just like to read on a little more from verse 28. Would you please read with me before I pause to note something else? Verse 28, Father, glorify your name, calls Jesus. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So either way, some kind of heavenly affirmation. But notice how Jesus continues. He's still got an eye on the world in these coming verses. He hasn't forgotten the Greeks. He hasn't forgotten these Gentiles, the big dark world out there. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men, all kinds of people to myself. Now just notice, so he's, he's clearly got the world in mind, hasn't he? This is plain in things. That, it's a bleak assessment of the world because it's time for judgment. It's time for Satan to be finally defeated. I think that's who the prince of this world is talking about. I think that's the reference um, that he's got in mind there. And yet, how would he be known? As the one who is lifted up to, what's it say? Draw all people, all kinds of people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now, here's my hunch about us. I suspect we probably know all that. (laughs) There might have been a little nuance here, a little twist in the story that we'd kind of forgotten about, or, oh, yeah, it's the Greeks who have come to him now and that precipitates this conversation. You know, there might have been something in there, a little bit of a surprise. 
Yes, where do we see the glory of God? How do I know that God, what God's really like? Where can I go to, to see him for all he is? Well, it's the cross. It's not ultimately in the, the colours of a sunrise, as beautiful as that is. It's not ultimately in the intricacies of a, a DNA sequence or, or in the vastness of the universe. Oh, those things teach us something general about God. But no, if you want to see the glory of God, of course we'd say you go to the cross of Jesus. There we see God for all he is. Christ would have the world clap eyes on who God is in the cross of our Lord for the salvation of the world. No surprise, I suspect, for most of us at least. So may I share with you the surprise for me in this passage, the thing that stood out to me and as I looked at it, I thought, wow, that that is kind of fresh and bright. It's not new so much, but gosh, it's, it's big. See, I've become convinced that this isn't just a passage about the glory of the Lord in the saving work of Christ for the world. It is that. But here's the surprise for me. I think it's a passage about the glory of the Lord mediated to the world through the lives of believers. I think it's about the glory of the Lord mediated to the world through the lives of believers. Now, I say that for three reasons and stick with me, see if you agree with me as we look through the passage again, just a few key points. I think it's a passage about what the world sees of Christ in us believers, brothers and sisters, in us today, Good News Christian Church. So, let me show you why I think that, three reasons very quickly. Firstly, John raises this theme just by making the Greeks come to Jesus only through Philip and Andrew. They stand in between, do you see? Uh, So, verse 21, they came to Philip with a request, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And then Philip uh, went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, why are we giving the runaround? Uh, I'm not saying, did it happen? No, of course it happened. Why does John bother telling us, do you see? He could have shortcut the whole thing. Unless he wants us to see the disciples standing between the world and Jesus. Just raising the theme, do you see? Just putting the thought in our minds. There's something between the world and Jesus. Secondly, Jesus himself. Um, why, Why does he suddenly talk about discipleship? there in verses 25 and 26, where he's talking about his glory before the world. Verse 25 and 26, um, it's odd, it's jarring, this little injection of discipleship right in between two sentences about his glory in his death. So, from verse 24, you remember there, verse 24, the seed must die to produce more seeds. Then, verse 25, the man, that is, that is you, us, who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Just think about that. Follow you where? Be with you where, Jesus? What, in the ground? Like a dead seed? Do you see how it's this full-on place to talk about discipleship? 
It's fine if you take it out of context. It's just like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't fall in love with this life. Yeah, okay, I'll get it. But no, 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 in this context, that's actually quite a full-on statement, isn't it? It's kind of the John equivalent of you must take up your cross daily and follow me. Leon Morris, the, um, the late Australian author, I think he gets at it exactly. He says, the servant must follow the Lord. He, that is we, we are to be where the Lord is. This is to be understood in light of the previous verse. Being where the Lord is entails suffering. It means losing life for the master's sake. There is no other way of Christian service. Okay, lastly, thirdly, I said there were three things, three things in the passage. We've only looked at two so far. Thirdly, take a look at the final exchange. Uh, We'll read that now. So from verse 34... Uh, basically, the crowd thinks, well, we know what the Christ is about. Okay, maybe they've read Psalm 89, but maybe they had John read it to them. Uh, we know what the Christ is about. The Christ is about forever. Uh, and yet you, Jesus, you keep talking about A, calling yourself the Son of Man, and B, talking about being lifted up and dying. So what's, what's going on here? Um, that seems to be the conundrum. It doesn't sound very Christ-ish. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up, we've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark doesn't know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. That's the phrase that I want to dwell on, sons of light. To be a son of, I'm quoting here, is to be characterised by the quality in question. Sons of light are accordingly not merely people with a slight interest in light, no, but people whose lives have been so revolutionised that they may be characterised with reference to light. One cannot be a follower of Jesus and be half-hearted about light. Now, that's an awkward, kind of awkward way of saying it, but I think it means sons of light. Well, they shine like the source of light, so that even when the source of light is gone, we continue to shine in the same character as the light that we've learned to shine from. Our lives become so characterised by light, that is, that even when Jesus is gone, there is still a shining. People can look and still say, hey, they are just like him. They are just like the dying seed who who went to the grave to produce many more. They are just like the one who loved not his life, but gave it up to save others. Do you see? It's this massive call to discipleship, to be like Christ, even in his glory, that is to say, in his death for the world. So, Christians, believers, sons and daughters of light, in the wisdom of God, we are to display to the world the sacrificial death of Jesus, that his light would shine out from us, even though he's gone. He's with us by his spirit, of course. We aren't to show it through loving our own life, No, in this world, there is a sense in which we stand between the world and Jesus. We are priests to the nations, if you will. So, by way of conclusion then, how 
how? How do you do it? How do we learn to, to live and to love and to illuminate, to illumine the glory of Christ to the world? It's almost another sermon in itself, isn't it? The how. This is just saying we must. Uh, can I pr- propose two little tests then uh, as we draw to a close? Two little test tests. The first one comes out of verse 25 there, in verse 25. The man who, or the one who loves his life will lose it, while the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, you understand, of course, that that verse is comparative, comparative love, hate. It's not saying actively hate your life. No, it's comparative. It's in comparison with. So, have we cultivated such a love for the things of the Lord that, I don't know, my life just doesn't seem that much of a big deal to me anymore? Have we cultivated such a love for the things of the Lord? Do I obsess, for example, do I obsess in my life over, what is it, over my career or my attractiveness or my uh, independence from mum and dad, perhaps? My goals, my money, my stuff, my financial security? Or are there times when I genuinely, I just forget about some of those things because I'm so enamoured with Jesus and his mission to the world? Just a little test. Are there times when I genuinely forget about that stuff because Jesus has filled my view? Now, I suspect we can all relate to the opposite, sadly. We can all relate to uh, the opposite when we've forgotten Jesus... Because my goals, my money, my stuff, my family, my... You see what I mean? Oh, we know how those idols can crowd him out. No, no, the one who loves his life will lose it, while the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Uh, On a more general note, I'll leave you with some advice from a Scottish preacher, Stephen Neal. And he's basically saying, if you want to be more on about the glory of Jesus then just spend more time and energy looking at him, won't you? He says this, When a person, by constant contemplation of the passion and resurrection of our Lord, finds himself so inflamed with love of God and man that he cannot bear the thought of any man living and dying without the knowledge of God, he may begin to bear the cross of Christ. Then this longing for the glory of God and for the salvation of all people becomes so great that it fills all of his thoughts and desires. Then he has that one thing without which no man can truly be a messenger of Christ. Brothers and sisters, what is the imprint that we leave on the world around us as we go about our lives? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that if we had a momentary audience with the world, if we had people clamouring to see us, we'd be in a flap, we wouldn't know quite what to present, we wouldn't quite know what to say, we wouldn't know quite what face to put on. Father, keep teaching us, please, to recognise that the face that the world needs to see is that of the crucified Lord Jesus Christ and Him risen, died for our salvation, our forgiveness, risen for our life eternal.
Lord God, day by day, would you please teach us to absolutely delight in him, our Lord and Saviour. May he be our boast, out in the world, amongst loved ones, with friends. May he be the one that we're delighted to point people to, not to point them to ourselves, but may we be sons and daughters of light in that sense, characterised by Jesus, such that we even begin to forget about some of those idols, some of those things that clamour for our thought, our attention. Father, please infuse within us a delight in the glory of Jesus, knowing that that means the Jesus who went to the cross, the Jesus who died to save, the one who is truly Lord and Saviour. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.